But this did not, despite this very positive approach, this, this had no impact on the issue of resettlement. I mean, this, this was a political decision and not a military decision. Absolutely. Absolutely. Eisenhower wanted nothing more, and Truman promised Eisenhower. The army is not going to be responsible for feeding these people forever and ever and ever. We're going to we're going to get them out. We're going to close these camps eventually. But in order to close the camps, he had to get Congress to pass a displaced persons bill. So Truman, working with the American Jewish Committee and the other American Jewish organizations, tries to get a bill passed. And it takes a year and a half to do so. In June of 1948, a Displaced Persons Act is passed in the United States. But as, as I mentioned earlier, one of the provisions put into that bill was that if you hadn't been in Germany on December 22nd, 1945, you weren't eligible for a visa. Well, as I said earlier, 90% of the Jews who ended up in Germany had survived the war in Poland and didn't get into the camps till after that cutoff. So there were a number of Jewish activists who said to the American Jewish Committee, stop now, you have created a monster. This Displaced Persons Act is gonna keep out 90% of the Jews and at the same time allow into the United States tens of thousands of war criminals, Nazi collaborators, anti-Semites from Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Ukraine. Uh, it was too late. Too late. If, if, if one holds by the, the if one holds by the thesis that the leadership of American Jewry did not do enough during the war for European jury. If, if one holds by that theory, you know, all six million died, you know, the, that whole theory, was, was the aftermath of the war and this issue a wake-up call for American jury where you saw activism and, you know, just a, a different approach that might have been during the war? Regrettably, the answer is not quite. Um, the American Jewish Committee, which was the largest um, political committee, the uh, Jewish Distribution Committee, which had the most money, stayed out of issues like this. Its job was to aid the Jews, not to lobby in Congress. The American Jewish Committee was too afraid. It was too timid. Instead of speaking out and saying to the American people, we have, we, the American people have to do something about these victims of Nazism in World War II, the American Jewish Committee hid. And then when it finally pushed for a Displaced Persons Act, it never mentioned the Jews. And the American Jewish Committee made sure that it established a non-sectarian, which meant Protestant Catholic, organization to lobby in Congress for a Displaced Persons Act. The American Jewish Committee paid all the bills, hired the organizers, made the decisions, 
through, but acted through a front group. And the American Jews or the American Jewish organizations never, they were so timid, they were so frightened that they were bulldozed. They were destroyed in the end. In the end, when this horrible discriminatory bill is passed, keeping out 90% of the Jews, Truman comes out and says, this is a disgrace. He said, I, I have to sign it, but it's a disgrace. And the American Jewish Committee said, you know, we'll try again. And they tried again, but still without focusing on the plight of the Holocaust survivors, because they were afraid, they were timid. And, and if, you, if you look at the quarter of a million Jewish refugees, that, that number, in the end of the day, where did they go of the 250,000? Which countries in the end of the day took them in? 155,000 go to Israel. 50,000 end up in the United States under the Displaced Persons Act of 1948 and the amended law, which removes the restrictions. Um, a significant number end up in Canada because there's a strong Canadian Jewish community there. A smaller number end up in Australia. Almost none end up in, well, they didn't want to go there in any of the European countries. Some end up in Argentina, some end up in Brazil, some end up in South Africa. Um, but by far, the greatest number, um, two-thirds to three-quarters, end up in Israel. Now, many of them, of the displaced persons in Germany, they, they go to Israel because they're Zionists and because they want to be in a Jewish homeland. But there are a number who go to Israel reluctantly because they've been through five years of horror during the war, another three years behind barbed wire. And the thought of going to a nation in 1948, which is war and a poor nation, um, is just much too frightening. I mean, there are, I, I, I read, you know, the correspondence and, and a mother says to her husband, there's, there's not enough milk for the babies in Israel. How can we go there? Let's try to go to the United States. Right. I, but they I, can't. Go I, have a, I have a very close relative. Um, I won't name him now because this is being recorded, who says that, that what happened when he was in the DP camp, when they came to him, they told him, um, we, we, we want to, because of what you went through, we want to send you on a, on a short vacation to Palestine. <laughs> they thought that he was going on a short vacation. He arrived in Palestine. They gave him a gun and they say, okay, now, now you're, now you're in, in Palestine in Israel, go fight. So, you know, the, the number of, again, I, I don't remember. I think it's between a quarter and a third of the casualties of the deaths in 1948 or displaced persons. Um, I mean, it, it's not a pretty picture. And the Israelis, I mean, there's a debate that's going on in Israel for a long time. 
Um, and we'll go on forever about whether it did enough for the displaced persons. What Ben Gurion said was, and, and, and this was not unanimous in the cabinet, um, ben Gurion said, any Jew who wants to come here, no matter how frail, no matter how sick, no matter how aged, we will accept. And the Israelis built tuberculosis sanitarium, they built hospitals, they built old age homes. But they also took younger Jews, displaced persons who spoke no Hebrew, and they sent them to the front lines. Um, and they did it out of what they perceived to be necessity. When you look at this period, um, what do you think the world has learned from, about refugees and how to handle I mean, since obviously 4850, there's been wars and refugees all over the world, whether it's coming from the Middle East or in, in different parts of the world. Has, has the, the, the world set up a better mechanism to deal with refugees? No. Right? No. An astounding um, no. In 1943... President Roosevelt convenes the nations of the world who are fighting the Axis. The Americans in 1940 have entered the war a year before and he convenes the nations of the world who are fighting against the Axis powers to form this United Nations organization, UNRWA for the Relief and Rehabilitation Association uh, Administration. There's no United Nations yet, but he forms this organization because he knows that the refugee problem in post-war is going to be enormous, not just in Europe, but in China, in Southeast Asia, all over the world. And he also knows that it's a global problem that can only be handled by an international organization. It's crystal clear to him. The Americans have never accepted, they accepted during the war what Roosevelt said. But since then, the Americans have held back. And certainly in the last four years under the Trump administration, have held back from entering into an international coalition that can come up with an international global solution to a global problem. Isn't an irony of history that, and, and even though it might be due to economic reasons that one country that has taken in so many refugees, and again, perhaps it's, it's purely an economic reason is Germany. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, this is counterintuitive, but the Germans were not the only nation that slaughtered Jews and refugees and engaged in ethnic cleansing in Europe. Um, the responsibility of the French and the Belgians and the, the Dutch is not as great as the Germans for the, for the Shoah. 
But, but the Germans have learned something from it, I think. Not the first generation. The post-war generation refused. The post-war generation said, you know, we're not Nazis. Hitler was the only Nazi. Hitler, Goebbels, Himmler, you know, the rest of us are innocent victims. And the Austrians were particularly horrible. The Austrians, who had vast majority had willingly joined the Third Reich, they said we're victims. But the Germans have learned something. And, and the Germans have tried to act with a humanitarian as well as a geopolitical understanding of what these refugees need and have set up as humane and refugee policy as certainly any nation in, in the West. Um, the Americans have learned nothing. How, how is, as, as you encounter young people today and you teach young people, how do you get across um, the thesis of your book? What, 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 what inspiration can young people get today from the incredible stories of refugees? How should it be taught? You know, it, it's very difficult. The, the last four years under the Trump administration have been a period in which American immigration policy, refugee policy, has been cruel beyond measure, beyond understanding. But as a historian, I can't look just at those four years. I have to look at, at a much larger picture. I have to look and teach my students that America, for all its lovely rhetoric about being a nation of immigrants, has a policy of discriminating against immigrants, of in the 19th century excluding all Asians, in the 1930s making it impossible for Jewish refugees to come to the United States, uh, during World War II continuing that policy. Up until 1950, continuing that policy. So what I try to say is that the seeds of the present have been planted in the past. And in order to come up with a humane immigration policy um, that takes into account geopolitical concerns, We've got to understand who we are as a nation and who we've been and our ambiguity. I wrote recently that America is a nation that loves and hates immigrants. Um, and we, we've got to understand why and how. That's number one, I, I try to impress upon my students. Number two is I try desperately to point out the role of myth and falsehood in American history and American policy. Um, the Jews were kept out because it was claimed that they were spies, they were subversives, they were Bolsheviks, which is, you know, an absurdity. Of course, there were Jewish communists, um, but the vast majority, you know, weren't coming to the United States to create a Bolshevik revolution. I mean, that's absurd. 
But it's just as absurd to say that the vast majority of migrants on our southern border are drug dealers or criminals and can't be let into the country for that reason. Um, so I try to impress upon my student that it's important to understand history and it's important to understand fact, you know, reality, and not base our policies on fears that rest on falsehood. Thank you very, very much. This was, was fascinating. Again, the, the, the last million, highly recommended. It. It's, again, um, deeply researched and, and highly readable. And uh, we want to thank uh, Professor Nasa. This was absolutely fascinating. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.